Welcome to Antibodies, and today it's our 19th body sode. Joining us is a special guest from, who recently recently uh, graduated from Howard Medical School and right now is a lead scientist at the company called Immuni, Dr. Yevgeny Kiner. Welcome to the show, Yevgeny. Very happy to be here. Thank you. And we have two of our lovely hosts, Natalie and Eugenio. Hello. So we got a, we got a very nice paper today titled "Gut CD4 Positive T Cell Phenotypes are, are a Continuum Molded by Microbes, Not by T Helper Archetypes." This paper, at least for me, it made a quite a buzz, and I was hearing about it from a various sources on Twitter. So I felt like I must read it, and then I realized I must invite Dr. Yevgeny for a nice talk here. Um, Yevgeny, can you tell us something about what you do at Immuni right now? Sure. So actually what I do at Immuni right now is, is pretty uh, related to my, my PhD work. So we are, well, but actually with one big difference is that uh, we are trying to map the uh, human immune system rather than the mouse immune system, which of course is more relevant for uh, for uh, diseases. And we're trying, we are building a, a very big uh, immune atlas uh, of the uh, of human uh, immune cells uh, and trying to uh, also compare like diseases and how how immune cells uh, respond um, to different uh, diseases like cancer autoimmune diseases um, and uh, yeah trying to understand that and uh, leverage leverage that in terms of drug discovery okay is that is there a lot of single cell sequencing involved in your work Yes, there's a lot of single cell sequencing involved. Okay, <laughs> then it looks like I, I I assume that you you consider yourself an expert at single cell sequencing. You've got a lot of data from on this I, paper. I, I've I've looked I've looked at a lot of single cell data. Let's put it this way. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So thanks a lot for an introduction, uh, Natalie. Do we have something funny today? Um, I guess so. Uh, what what would you call a mucosa resident naive T cell who can't decide what it should differentiate into when it grows up? What? What? You should tell it to go with its gut. Wow. Ooh. <laughs> oh, wow. That's. Oh, what am I seeing there? Ten subscriber loss. Nice. Oh. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Natalie. <laughs> so, uh, thank you, Natalie. Thank Thank you, Dr. Evgeny, for being here. So um, just before we start wrapping up this paper, uh, let's start with terminology. And we're going to hear a lot of TH phenotypes and, and the TH paradigm. And what this basically is, is uh, that a T cell can differentiate towards different uh, factor phenotypes, uh, depending on the nature of the pathogen. We also need to know about uh, germ-free and a specific pathogen premise. And, um, a germ-free basically is a, a mice that is uh, has literally no microbes. You know, it's really in a a, a, a place for uh, with with no microbes. So we can rule out, you know, the uh, the, the the role of, of microbes uh, and the immune system. And in the, we have other type of animals that we call spe specific pathogen-free mice, which these animals have no, uh, have like 
like a normal microbiota and we we think that we don't they don't have like any pathogen you know um so yes yeah. i wanted to ask a question about the germ-free mice and specific pathogen free mice so it is known that germ-free mice they have a very weird immune system how are these mice useful for immunological research so uh, these mice are, are useful because uh, you, uh, um, and in a sense, you can rule out the, the the paper of the microbiota for a given phenotype. So there are some phenotypes that are dependent or independent of the microbiota, and in this way we can understand. And also, these germ-free mice, you can actually, I don't know how to say it, but you can put only a strain of bacteria to these mice, and you can study the, the, the how a specific uh, bacteria could define an, uh, a specific immune response. Like, exactly, it's like a like it's like a clean uh, control where you can put exactly one bacteria, one strain that you want, and see what the immune uh, response for it is. Yeah. And how are these mice generated? Are they treated with antibiotic? So these mice actually are bred in a, in a facility that has a, it's a special facility that has no uh, mic, no microbes and is sterile. So initially they're generated uh, like yeah, by treating with antibiotics, and uh, but then the whole line is not treated with antibiotics. Because antibiotics might have some effects, of course. First of all, it's not one hundred percent like removes uh, all the microbiota, but also has other effects. So basically, a germ-free mouse is a mouse that has never uh, seen any uh, microbes in its in its life. It's born without microbes. Yeah. It's a special colony. And I guess its its mother wouldn't have yeah. either, right? So even it, it wouldn't get the antibodies from exactly. nursing or things like that. And how do you compare that to specific pathogen-free my, uh, mice as a model organism? So they're uh, they're they're different. So of course, specific pathogen free um, is is uh, is a mouse that doesn't have any pathogenic uh, bacteria, but it's so it's kept in a not in a sterile environment, but in a clean environment, um, and it actually differs quite a bit from a facility to facility. Some uh, like different facilities obviously have different uh, bacteria that are growing around there. But uh, they're not uh, they're not uh, pathogenic, and in a way, it's also like a clean system. But it's of course not as as clean as the germ-free because those actually don't have any microbes. But in a way, it's more physiological. I mean, the germ-free is not really physiological. Uh, you, you don't you don't see that in in the wild or in humans. Yeah. And going back to something uh, Eugenio was talking about, uh, we have these T helper phenotypes. Um, so just for a quick summary, we have a phenotype called T-helper-1 associated with a cytotoxic T-cell response and a response against intracellular pathogens, typically associated with interferon gamma secretion. Then we got a T-helper-2 response, which is anti-worm or anti-alimentic response, extracellular pathogen, it's this kind of response. And there is an association of IL-4, IL-5 secretion by the T-cells. And we have another phenotype actually we have a lot of phenotypes i'm just going to talk about the three main ones uh, we have the tlper 17s which are associated with mucosal immunity uh, generally against fungi and also in the uh, all the immunity in the gut so there is in your introduction of the paper you mentioned that 
there is a difference between what we have seen these phenotypes in vitro, but we don't know much about how these phenotypes exist in vivo. Can you tell us something about this? Right. So this, so although TH, TH uh, types were basically described in vitro, uh, first TH1 versus TH2 in the, in the eighties, um, by looking at particular clones that were secreting, uh, different, different cytokines. Uh, and those, so they were described as TH1 or, or TH2. And then, of course, there's many others that got uh, added upon it, like TH17, um, TH9, TH22, probably others that are, uh, that are missing here. Um, and the, all of those, like most of the papers on them, are actually in vitro. And they are actually relatively easy to generate in vitro. You just uh, culture naive T cells with, um, with cytokines and usually specific cytokines uh, in very super physiological concentrations and you get like polarization of the TH types. It hasn't been studied very much in vivo because um, it's, uh, it's actually very hard to get uh, good uh, sorting markers for them. There's certainly sorting markers that are associated with one phenotype or the other, but they're not, they don't correlate like 100%. So, it's very hard to actually um, sort these cells and uh, compare them to one another in like different uh, different conditions. And I think this is where the big advantage of single cell RNA sequencing comes. I just want to point out on this one thing you mentioned, supraphysiological concentrations in vitro. So what you're saying is in vitro, we often treat these uh, T cells with such high concentration of cytokine that they do form these distinct phenotypes, but in vivo, such high concentrations do not exist, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, they okay. do exist, but they don't exist. Um, they don't exist like in a you know in a well where there's a kind of pretty similar concentration across uh, every like in every cell. Um, they probably do exist in some compartments, uh, but it, but not necessarily like you know overall. So, okay. thank you. So, finally, uh, you uh, something that you mentioned, single cell RNA seq. So, now that we have an expert on here, can you tell us about what is single cell RNA seq uh, technology? Sure. So, um, so this technology allows you to uh, profile the transcriptome, the RNA, uh, in single cells. So every every cell. Uh, that you take, uh, it would tell you through the, the transcriptional profile of the, of the cell. And this is kind of different than other uh, phenotyping techniques that existed before. So, for example, uh, flow cytometry or, or side-off, uh, you can look at many uh, proteins in the cell, but in a way you're, you're a bit biased because you have to select the antibodies uh, that you're uh, looking for. And usually, at least in flow cytometry, it's usually under under 30, maybe a little bit more if you push it. Um, on the other hand, there's RNA, RNA sequencing, bulk RNA sequencing, but there you get you get the whole transcriptional profile of cells, but it's not uh, single cells. You, you basically have to choose what you look for. And of course, uh, you can you can't really tell exactly if it's if the population is homogeneous or, or heterogeneous, you just know that uh, they sort of express 
particular genes, but you don't know if one cell expresses it higher than the other, or it's like two different populations. Uh, so for example, I like to give this example of, um, so if, if you didn't know that T-Rex existed and you sorted CD4 T cells and you did bulk RNA sequencing on them, you you would assume that actually all CD4 T cells express FOXP3 at low levels, but you wouldn't know that there's actually particular, there's a particular population that's distinct and expresses FOXP3. And that's where really single cell gets its power, it's unbiased, and it tells you exactly about which cells express what. What are the limitations of single cell sequencing? That's a great question. There are definitely some limitations, and I think as technology uh, moves ahead, they'll be they'll be solved. But right now, um, I think the biggest limitation is is the dropouts, so-called. So you don't actually get 100% of the transcriptome in a cell. You sample. So if so basically, if you don't find a particular transcript in the cell by, by this technology, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not there. It just means that it was not sample. So one way to overcome this limitation is actually to use many, many cells. And then you kind of get uh, a little bit more, uh, like a little bit more uh, granularity and you see what clusters there are because it's it's kind of averaging out the, all the cells that have the dropouts. Very cool. And finally, there's uh, something in the paper that caught my attention, and it's a term that is dimension reduction, and it's used by in this uh, single cell RNA uh, data. Can you tell us a little about what it is and its rationality? Sure. Um, I'm probably not the best person to, t to tell this, but uh, because it's a, it's a very mathematical uh, slash computational term, but I'll try. Um, so what you get from single cell RNA sequencing is, a, is basically a matrix of uh, genes versus cells. And, you know, it's a very, it's, there are many genes, like 20,000 genes, let's say, um, in, a, in, a given, uh, in a given cell. And uh, you're, you really want to kind of look at the data. Um, and it's, it's very hard to look at 20,000 dimensions, right, which are the genes. So with, with uh, yeah, so with several, with, uh, several techniques, one of them, for example, is uh, like principal component analysis. And, and UMAP is more of a visualization technique, UMAP or a Disney. Um, you actually create, um, you kind of reduce these dimensions into dimensions that kind of co-correlate with each other a little bit. And uh, you can actually look in a case of principal components, like a few, uh, like maybe 10 or 20 principal components. And then with a UMAP or a TISN, you actually visualize them. So you actually have a two-dimensional representation of where uh, these cells lie, uh, kind of like a, like a, in a way, like you can think about it like a like a map, two-dimensional map. Of course, the map doesn't capture. Uh, if you look at an atlas, it doesn't capture necessarily like valleys and, and mountains, right? But it's sort of uh, that reduces the dimensionality in something that is actually very useful. Uh, I'm t I'm taking a mathematical modeling class right now, and there's this quote by this mathematician that's like, "Oh, if I have four dimensions, I can you know map out a whole ele uh, elephant." You know, with this data and with five, I can make him move. So it's just like uh, <laughs> if you have too many dimensions that it's it's uh, 
yeah, it's it's not a faithful representation of the data, but as you move it down, you'll get something more useful and, and hopefully accurate enough to, to understand. Right. I mean, I think it's it's also comes to the fact that we are humans and we need to understand things in two or three dimensions, but not more than that. <laughs> and computers would be happy with uh, 20,000 dimensions, but uh, that's not something we can easily interpret. So when you reduce dimensions, you're removing anything that is not as important and just keeping the ones that are most important for us to understand the data or that explain the data. Uh, in a way, yes. Uh, yeah, pretty pre pretty much. So, for example, with principal components, you take uh, like the first like this first uh, few components actually represent uh, yeah, like let's say more than ninety percent of the diversity of the data. Yeah. So of, of course you remo you remove some information, uh, but you know, but in a way you try to preserve as much as possible because of course some pathways co-correlate, uh, some genes co-correlate. So thank you. So let's start with the introduction of the paper. So adaptive immune responses uh, are essential. It's just an essential component of immune system invertebrates. B cells and T cells are key players in the activation of this response. While B cells are necessary for antibody production, T cells orchestrate the response, providing signals such as cytokines for activation and maturation of immune cells. T cells have been classified in CD4 and CD8 T cells being a CD4T helper subset and CD8 as a cytotoxic one. Uh, these papers will focus on the role and diversity of CD4T cells. So going back to our 101 immunology classes, we need to remember that T cell activation requires three important signals. The first one, antigen recognition. The second one, co-stimulation. And the third one, cytokine signaling. And depending on the nature of the pathogen, the cytokines that will, be, that, that will be presented in the environment will influence the differentiation of T cells and will have a, di a direct impact in their phenotype or as the author might say, T cell flavors. Through many years of research, immunologists have been classifying T effector cells depending on the profile of cytokines they express. Seminal work in the 1980s demonstrated that the effector T cell pool contains functional heterogeneity. As first described, Th1 and Th2 cells. Th1 secreting interferon gamma and supporting inflammation and cytotoxic response. And in the other hand, Th2 producing cells, IL4, IL5, or IL13 supporting allergen inflammation and antibody production. Over time, many effector flavors have been described, including Th17, Th2, Th9, and T follicular helper cells. So immunologists also have found that the infection or allergic agent will ultimately be the one that triggers the effect of flavor. For example, Th1 cells associate with intracellular pathogens, Th2 and Th9 cells with helminth parasites, and Th1, Th17 and Th22 cells with bacteria and fungal infection. Even though this model is easy to understand, scientists have found some caveats and inconsistencies to this model in inflammatory conditions in vivo. For example, the model assumes that cytokine production, cytokine expression is mutually excluded. And as for now, this had not been the case. Different groups also have showed that plasticity between THC, TH subtypes is a common phenomenon. And finally, some surface markers were proposed as indicators of T cells flavor, something that often has been proven wrong. So the objective, the objective of the work was uh, to assess the spectrum of phenotypic states that T-effector cells can adopt in vivo using single-cell genomics technology. 
let's start now with the results. And the main question of this, uh, the, the, the first figure was to how is the T cell phenotypes uh, developed in a germ-free mice in a, in a specific pathogen-free mice? So how are these T, T helper clusters uh, distributed in the animal? So uh, to, to, initiate, to initially characterize the TH phenotype in vivo, the authors wanted to evaluate the transcription landscape of T cells using single-cell RNAIC. So the authors analyzed CD4 T cells of colonic lamina propria from conventional specific pathogen-free animals. And what they found is uh, by clustering analysis, uh, they can uh, cluster T cells according to the transcription profiles in four groups. Uh, a group that is uh, associated with T regulatory cell clusters, uh, FOXP3, ROR-C, and ELIOS subset. And the other two will be naive T cells and effector subset. So these clusters are also generated in germ-free mice, with, but with fewer Treg and effector cells. Um, the authors also uh, later focus on T effector cells with the goal of finding typical effector clusters in their data. And the authors couldn't cluster effector cells, but instead they found a quasi-continuous cloud. And this is a really, really important point because I guess uh, what they were expecting to find, you know, like I, I, I'm thinking a TH17 uh, cluster, a TH1 cluster, uh, or uh, other type of cluster, but they couldn't uh, find this uh, cluster and they, they found this quasi continuous cloud. So, using a secondary analysis, the authors now could cluster the cells by the level of activation and not by the cytokine profiles or transcription factor. And I guess this was a really first observation that. For me, reading this is blowing my mind. I think for uh, Evgeny also did. In the in the first figure, I was not as surprised because these are just under homeostatic conditions. So yeah. I would I wouldn't expect a lot of polarized T cell types under uninfe mm -hmm. no infections. But yeah, the next yeah. the next figure was surprising to me. Yeah, and that's exactly why we decided we, that uh, we should probably try and push the system to the mm -hmm. limits and infect them with different uh, bugs that uh, elicit very strong TH responses. Yeah, so let's dig into figure two then. Um, so, okay, you didn't see anything in the uninfected mice, but we know that uh, certain immune responses can be characterized as like TH1 or TH17 responses because those are the uh, predominant cytokines in response. Um, so the authors thought that maybe if you could elicit these types of responses, it might change the clustering pattern. So to drive differentiation towards certain, certain T effector cell types, the authors infected mice with pathogens known to drive responses toward these subtypes. For instance, there was a, uh, they infected the mice with a salmonella uh, bacteria called Cerevar uh, typhromerium. Is that right? And yep. it's a, known to induce interfering gamma. So it's a TH1-like response. Uh, they also infected uh, a different set of mice with Citrobacter rodentium, which induces IL-17. So that's a TH17-like response. And then uh, you could also infect them with uh, a couple different types of helmets and this should drive towards TH2 responses. So then they would examine the cells from these mice 11 to 13 days later. And so as a control, indeed, some of these uh, uh, each of these pathogens drove cytokine secretion towards the TH subset that they are associated with. Um, and through flow, you could even see some interfering gamma and IL-17 positive double producer cells, which is, is expected. 
So to analyze how infection changed clustering of these T effector populations, the authors uh, did something called hashtagging uh, the cells, which is basically you have uh, an antibody that has a particular uh, DNA tag that you can put on cells from a particular mouse, then you can pool those and uh, mix them together before sorting in library construction with uh, SCRNA-seq. So while the Tregs and naive T cells kept the same clustering patterns, the T effector cells somewhat skewed towards particular patterns, but didn't quite form the discrete clusters that were expected. It was still kind of like a continuous cloud. Even using various clustering algorithms and a, a trained deep neural network, typical TH set, uh, signatures could not be generated into discrete clusters. In fact, uh, IL-17A and interferon gamma secreting cells from the same infection were more similar to each other, like from the same infection, than the same cell types uh, across infections. So it's more like it's it's the infector infecting agent that's generating this profile as opposed to you know whether the cell is secreting IL-17 or interferon gamma. Lastly, the author, authors corroborated uh, this sequencing results with flow cytometry using markers that are commonly used to sort these subsets. And you kind of mentioned that the sorting is, is not perfect and there's no good marker really. Only two of these markers, CCR6 and uh, IL-1 receptor 2, were mutually exclusive, but no markers fully captured the population of cells transcribing the RNA of their characteristic cytokine. So this is pretty interesting that uh, canonical markers of TH subsets via transcription or flow don't clearly define the population. And in fact, if you're looking at colonic T effector cells, their transcriptional pattern clustered according to the infecting agent and not necessarily the secreted cytokine or membership to a particular T effector class. Mm -hmm. So do you have anything interesting about this uh, figure? Yeah, I think for, for us, and I, I think for other people also that read the paper and uh, wrote to us later, I think the most important, most surprising finding was that, that um, TH17 or IL-17 secreting cells, I should call them, and interferon secreting cells uh, from the same infection are more uh, similar uh, to each other than to other IL-17. And that's kind of completely, goes completely against the dogma because uh, I mean, people have observed different uh, TH17s before, different like TH1s, but it was more in the context of, let's say, pathogenic, non-pathogenic, uh, but not really because of the microbes. And also the microbes are known to interact more with the antigen-presenting cells rather than directly with the T cells, which can still be the case, but it's just the effect on the T cells uh, is not something really we appreciated before. Yeah, very interesting. I have a question here. Is it the first time that anybody is looking at the helper phenotypes using single cell RNA-seq? Um, this is not the first time. So this is not the first time people have sequenced CD4 T cells uh, by single cell, not not even probably the, first, the 10 first ones. But I think no one really, no one really looked particularly at that aspect of like how how similar they are um, and like do they actually break into particular clusters. Uh, people have done single cell uh, sequencing uh, and we actually showed in one of the figures that even with like deeper, I think it was a paper from Sarah Teichman where they actually use SmartSeq which is like gives better quality single cell RNA sequencing than a 10x platform just in terms of like how many genes you can capture. And even though the paper was about like something completely different, we could see that actually the um, IL-17 and interferon gamma secreting cells were actually 
also on a continuum, even by using that different platform. So people have have seen this kind of before with single cell data, but they never really like investigated if this is kind of an artifact of the platform, or haven't really like given much thought about uh, if if you know these are real real subsets or not. Cool. All right. So the next question you guys were asking was, how does this pattern change over time? So uh, maybe maybe 13 days post-infection wasn't the ideal time to look for differentiation of Th17 and Th1 subsets. So the authors again analyzed the CD4 positive T cells after salmonella infection at, at different time windows. So the CD4 response occurred between days 10 and 17, and changes in the transcriptional pilot, uh, profile of the T effector cells began at day 10. Again, the transcripts associated with, you know, fighting off salmonella more than it did with any specific TH signature cluster. Uh, during the infection, during any infection, CD4 positive T cells began to proliferate ra rapidly. So another thing the authors did was try to track lineages from a particular CD4 positive T cell. And how you can do this is you can look at the rearranged TCR transcripts and the genes associated with that uh, because that's kind of like a barcode for the clone that are descending from the single T cell. So yeah. they identified 579 so-called clonotypes, which are again the, the lineages, which expanded over time within the T effector population. Interestingly, uh, not all these clones expressed just one cytokine. And sometimes even within a clonotype, there were cells that could express either interfering gamma or IL-7 T. So despite their precursor, the descendants did not seem committed to the cytokine or transcriptional signature of its parents, but they also didn't diverge necessarily in gene expression over time. I was hoping you could explain that a little bit more, um, talking about median Euclidean distances between cells. Uh, what does that exactly mean? Yeah, I had a feeling you would ask about that one because I, I think that one is a very, <laughs> is, a, is a very, it's not a very straightforward concept, but basically, um, you would think that cells that uh, are so one way to interpret the data actually is that uh, over time like those cells would diverge and become more like th1 or more like th17 um, so that's why we decided uh, to look at the euclidean distance between uh, cells that have the same clonotype so basically they have the same parent over time. So Euclidean distance uh, is, is a distance, uh, is basically measuring how similar the cells are based on, again, kind of a dimensionality reduction of a distance between, between their um, gene expressions in a way that's, uh, that's what it is. And we actually saw that it doesn't increase over time. If anything, it, it decreases like for day 17. So that, that suggested um, to us that um, they are not uh, like they, they were like, they, they, they are not uh, diversifying in a way um, over over time. Yeah, that's very cool. So again, again, this is concluding that the uh, the fact that you can't find one T effector cell, cell site is is not because of uh, or, or I guess it's uh, it's based on the activation. It's based on the the pathogen it's infected with, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, and it's not it's not really uh, and basically that we looked at the right uh, time point. That yes. it's not something that we just missed because uh, we didn't look at the right time. Yeah, absolutely. Figure five, we're going to look at chromatin now. So maybe maybe you don't believe all the mRNA sequencing, but another way to examine expression uh, is to look at open chromatin around particular genes, because that would suggest it's being transcribed. 
So uh, the authors used another single cell assay, assay, and this is called transposase accessible chromatin sequencing. So this is uh, SC attack seq on the CD4 positive T cells from the mice infected with salmonella. So from what I understand about uh, attack seq is you've got a, a transposon that will integrate itself into open chromatin. And so you can, you can tag that and sequence that and it will sequence open parts of the chromatin. Is that correct? Yeah, that's roughly what it is. Basically, this, the open chromatin is more um, is more open, so there, this transposase will much more easily incorporate there. So you can actually um, sequence more of the open chromatin rather than the closed chromatin, and that will tell you which parts are active transcriptionally. Cool. Once again, uh, considering the typical indicator genes for TH cell, t uh, cell types, they looked at, you know, where, where the open chromatin was and they found that the T cells now clustered into again, T regs, naive T cells and T effector cells. Um, as a positive control, the authors compared open chromatin regions from in vitro differentiated TH1 and TH17 cells and found clearly distinguished attack seek profiles. However, the ex vivo T effector cells once again had a more nebulous pattern and those are the ones coming directly from the infected mice. Moreover, the gene for ROR gamma, which is considered the master transcription factor for IL-17 T, uh, T helper cells, and the genes controlled by that transcription factor could be open at the exact same time as uh, TBET, which is considered the master transcription factor for TH1 cells, and the genes controlled by TBET. So if these are the so-called master transcription factors for these T effector cells, uh, and it, those aren't the main thing opening up the chromatin and giving them their signature, what else could it be? So the authors examined other transcription factors that would be known to uh, control these open chromatin regions and uh, found that the transcription factors most controlling these were the ones associated with T cell activation. So like AP1, IRF4, BAC2, therefore supporting the author's hypothesis that the stimulation of the T cell may be more important in driving T effector diversity than the canonical markers of T effector populations. So uh, my question to you is, why do the gut T cells act so much differently than the in vitro differentiated ones? What do you think is driving that? That's uh, yeah, that's a good question. So actually, you can see on uh, in the figure B, there's uh, there's a profile of the in vitro in vitro cells, and you really see that our gamma score and the Tibet uh, score are, are really delineate, delineated there. And the reason for that is is again the as we mentioned earlier, most likely the superphysiological conditions. Um, you, these cells are given particular, like a high, high concentration of particular cytokines, and that's why they polarize only, only in one way. Um, also, I think that the reason the activation plays a large role in vivo is because uh, we, we, are, we are dealing with, in a way, a 3D structure, right? So a cell that's closer to an antigen-presenting cell or, or to the pathogen is going to be more activated than a cell um, then a cell that's not. And of course, there's also cytokines that come, come into play. So it's much more of a complex system than an in vitro where every cell gets pretty much the same amount of, of, of cytokine, the same like activation in a way. Um, and, and, the and the cytokines are, are uniform versus there, like, as you know, as you can see from the flow also, uh, salmonella doesn't only uh, introduce interferon gamma, it also has a uh, IL-17 uh, response, and same thing for Citrobacter. They're kind of almost never really mutually exclusive. 
Yeah, I, I was going to ask you also, uh, how do you think other cell types are playing a role? You mean uh, T cell subtypes or? Uh, any or? any other immune cell subtype, because I mean, in vitro, you only have the, the CD4 positive T cells. So do you think right. any they're talking to anybody else? Oh, absolutely. Uh, CD4 cells uh, in particular, they they need uh, antigen presentation, right? Um, so they are definitely talking to antigen presenting cells. Um, and the antigen presenting cells, at, at least that's what's known and thought of being a kind of... Uh, um, the, the role is that they, they are the ones that actually polarize the T cells. They're the ones that, sec that are secreting the, the cytokines that polarize the T cell one way or the other. Um, but also not just by cytokine secretion, also by uh, um, kind, of, kind of when they when the CD4 T cells and the MHC uh, class two from the APCs uh, interact directly, they also kind of skew the T cells. Um, but that's that's kind of mostly what we know. I think we I think we didn't appreciate as as much as like how these T cells are different also not by the th response but also by the by the pathogen response and i think that's something definitely to to look into in the in the future like how these pathogens affect the, the t cells directly um or or indirectly via the apcs but how the apcs show that uh this is a salmonella and this is a citrobacter and yeah, yeah and it's not just this is a th17 pathogen or th1 pathogen very cool okay with that we can move to the next figure where the authors asked, how is the T helper clustering affected when surface protein and sur functional data is considered? So far, we, uh, the authors have shown that distinct T helper uh, types do not seem to exist at the transcriptomic level or epigenetic level in vivo. One could ask, what if the protein expression profiles are different from the transcription profile and maybe there are distinct clusters possible there? To answer this question, the authors picked several surface protein markers whose gene expression from the single cell RNA data showed a gradient across different cells. These chosen markers were used with a flow cytometry panel and the authors looked for a spontaneous clustering of cells. Same as the uh, RNA data, the protein data did not help in clustering and all the cells just formed a giant continuous cloud of cells. The authors then tried to empirically determine boundaries on this cloud to divide it into three distinct populations and sorted them out from the colon lemina propria of salmonella infected mice. We're going to call these three populations A, B, and C for now. The authors ran RNA-seq on the clustered populations. They found that the genes associated with resting state were more active in population B, certain T helper 17 associated transcription transcripts were more represented in population A. To test the function of each of these sorted populations, the authors simulated these cells to produce cytokines. While there were some patterns observed, for example, population A and C secreted more interferon gamma than population B, and population A secreted more IL-17 A and 22 than B and C, the cytokine secretion ability only varied quantitatively and there was no particular or let's say exclusive population which was unable to secrete a particular cytokine. 
this further confirms that there are no distinct T helper phenotypes in vivo, but just a continuum where some T cells simply make more or less of a cytokine instead of exclusively producing it, which is how we've been seeing things in the in the in vitro. I, I have another. Oh, sorry, I had another question. Do you think that this is just a gut thing, or is just this across the mouse? Yeah, that's uh, that's still up to debate, I would say. But uh, because the gut, in a way, is is a very distinct tissue. On the one hand, it's one of the largest like immune um, organs in the body, right? Uh, but on the other hand, uh, it's also one that's exposed to a lot of uh, different uh, microbes uh, all the time. Um, and most of these microbes are actually good microbes, right? Uh, but sometimes there's, there's, there's pathogenic ones. So so it's hard, it's hard to answer this question definitely until you really look at other, other tissues. Um, but it does seem from other, uh, other groups um, that have done mostly um, mostly baseline, but also some uh, like infections. Uh, let's say there's a there's a paper that has been uh, dealing with lung um, T cells uh, after, uh, after dust mite infection. And um, it, the, the, again, the focus on the paper was not really to decipher uh, TH subsets, but you can see from the single cell RNA sequencing data, it's still a little, it's still like on the continuum. Um, yeah, so I, I don't have a definite answer here, um, but uh, I, I believe it's not just a gut thing, but I, unfortunately, I don't have uh, evidence to really su support it yet. Yeah. Yeah, based on my understanding, I would think so. But yeah, we can talk about that in our discussion later. For now, you guys have shown through RNA seq, single cell, protein, and epigenetically that these are not distinct types. There is, in any way you look at these uh, helper T cells, they're always forming a continuum based on. Their, their expression levels or open chromatins. Pretty cool mm -hmm. stuff. So in the final figure, which is very different, and I felt like I felt like it's 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 going on a separate path to what we have been talking about lately. The authors found unique populations based on their gene expression clustering algorithm. And let's briefly look at these populations. So just to clarify, when you were looking at the cloud, you while you saw this continuum based on activation state, but there were these very tiny clusters that were protruding out of the main data. And you guys went on and named these clusters based on what kind of genes they were expressing. So one of the clusters was ISG or interferon signature gene T cell populations, which uh, these cells were particularly enriched in interferon induced signature, suggesting that these cells may be particularly perceptive to type 1 interferons, or it's possible that they reside in a niche where there is a lot of interferon signaling. Right. And then there it's were most likely a cell state rather than a cell type, um, based on where they found themselves at the time, in a way. That's what we think. And then there is the myeloid-like T-cells. These were effector T-cells express, uh, expressing several myeloid markers like MHC2 and C1QA. Uh, Natalie and Eugenio, you guys remember last time we were talking to Dr. Rao, we had these T-cells that are expressing MHC2. And yeah. we were talking about, nobody knows why they're expressing MHC2. Uh, <laughs> Evgeny, do you, do you have any idea what, what might be the role of this protein on T-cells? 
So in humans, it actually has been described uh, quite widely, quite widely that uh, activated T cells do express HLA-DR. Um, but in mice, that has not been the case so much. And uh, you know, when we first saw the data, we were sure that these were actually uh, doublets. Um, doublets are um, two cells that just some, sometimes, uh, because the encapsulation is a bit on a Poisson distribution, uh, sometimes you do get two cells that are encapsulated uh, at the same time, and uh, they would form doublets. Uh, and that's what we thought that happened. It was a myeloid cell and a T cell, but it doesn't seem to be the case. Um, in terms of the, what the role is, it's very unclear. Um, it, it might be that uh, it might be that uh, these cells are just uh, are expressing kind of a myeloid MHC two program, perhaps to kind of prime the cells. That a very salmonella infection is very kind of a very aggressive infection, and there is a lot of things going on there. So, I mean, that's just a theory that I would suggest here that doesn't have any any backing. Um, is that maybe these cells um, they express MHC class two to kind of prime the next cell even more with more like antigen but, but right now we don't have any evidence that they actually can present antigen uh, yeah. except for the protein and the rna data so after the iac t cells myeloid like t cells we found a third uh, the authors found a third population that expressed several genes typically associated with neurons and this was the most baffling one for me <laughs> why are there t cells expressing neuron-like genes? Uh, these, I wouldn't say necessarily that these are neural genes. I think mm -hmm. there are a lot of them. You're talking about the C CRTAM ones, right? Yes, yes. So a lot of those genes are actually very cytotoxic, it looks like, and it's chemokines. Um, and there are some genes that are also expressed in neurons, but I wouldn't, uh, I don't think actually that's that. Uh, Surprising. I mean, there's a lot of genes that are expressed in neurons and in T cells, uh, and they don't necessarily have anything uh, to do with their function as a T cell or as a neuron. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's that's that was a quite unique population. Are you guys planning to decode more about what to do in future? Do you know if? Um, I I'm not sure if my uh, former uh, boss is uh, looking into that, uh, but I think. Um, I think that the stipulation is uh, is just yeah. It looks like a, it's a very like kind of cytotoxic in a way, like CD40 cell, mm. which um, yeah, which has been yeah, which has been described before. Although, this, but this is a, like in the gut, so um, things tissues always affect things differently. Um, so, still not quite sure what this population necessarily is. There are also some like exhaustion markers mm. there, like lag three. Um, so that's still up in the air. So if, I think if anyone wants to look closer into it, that, that, that would be very interesting. It's a good project idea for more scientists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe in the next 20 years, we'll see a paper that says, your T cells are required to move your muscles. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> All right. So that was, that was the whole paper. I would like to have some discussion about everything we have found. So coming back to our initial terminology term where you said there's a difference between what we see in vitro versus what we see in vivo in terms of T-cell phenotypes. In vitro, it's very well characterized that they do show a distinct phenotypes, assuming you provide them these supraphysiological con concentrations of cytokines. 
I was thinking when I was reading this paper, I think that since in vivo, there's always a fluid flow. There are these interstitial fluids, there's blood that does not like to form these uh, concentrations. It does not like to have very distinct concentrations of proteins or any mediators. So it's always dissipating the gradient and it's trying to it's trying to make everything normal or it's trying to make it homogeneous just by diffusion. So I was right. thinking maybe because of diffusion, there is never these high concentrations available. That's why the T cells do not receive either very high or very low amount of concentrations. They just receive a gradient of different kind of cytokines. I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And that's what's in a way different than vivo. Yeah. I was wondering if if we did a similar study in an autoimmune model that there are auto, there are there are several models that are driven by interferon gamma, let's say that are known to have TL per seven, TL per one cells, you deplete TL per one, or if you uh, knock out TBET, you would have no autoimmunity left in those models. I was wondering, would you find, would you expect to find similar continuum in these, in these uh, autoimmunity mice models? That's a very interesting question. Um, in a way, yeah, so like different immune diseases are historically categorized into, oh, this is a more like TH1 or a TH17 or a, like TH2 uh, type disease. And, you know, there's drugs in the market that uh, that uh, target, let's say, IL-17 um, for for, uh, for certain diseases. Um, and yeah, I think in a way, the, I think this study will hopefully shed light on, you know, maybe it's not really that black and white and it's not just a TH17 disease, right? Like um, um, dermatitis, for example, uh, or just a, like a TH1 disease. Um, it's kind of a mix of both. And in a way, the drugs that targeted might actually be um, not just uh, anti-IL-17, for example, or anti-TNF. I mean, I, I'm sure at some point someone will do single cell sequencing on CD4 positive T cells from individuals with autoimmunity. We could just dumpster dive and get that data and <laughs> look for it. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's been done, actually. Uh, yeah, I think. Yeah, I'm sure someone's yeah. done it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, arthritis, for sure. Um, IBD as well. In love, but of course, would... in a human, in a in a human, it's very hard to actually, you know, compare, uh, you know, salmonella infection to like a Centrobacter infection, right? So, no <laughs> one is gonna volunteer for that in a way, right? So, um, in in a way, it's a bit hard. It's a harder system to study, of course, even though it's of course more more useful. So, Evgeny, so do you think we with this first and seminal study, we need to start uh, using? this terminology as th1 th17 and change the way because i have noticed that you meant you talk about il17 or interferon gamma producing cells but you you don't use the term of th1 or th17 as a as a formal um uh, concept do 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 you think we are ready to change this uh, uh, the use of this the concept um, so I think, uh, so I think that uh, the TH subtypes is a very, very good model and led us to a lot of um, understanding of disease and just cell states in general over the last, I guess, um, 30 years. Um, 
but a, a, a model always you just need to one just needs to remember that it's a model rather than the truth so a model is very useful uh to understanding uh kind of simple concept uh but it's not necessarily something that is uh, that is real in the real world so as you can see even in the even in this paper there are definitely some cells that are much more th17 skewed than uh, th1 skewed they are very clearly um, secreting or producing IL-17 and not so much interferon gamma. Those cells uh, do exist and their biology is probably more TH17-like. But uh, I think I think what we need to remember is that they're not mutually exclusive in a way and it's kind of a continuum of states. And actually, maybe the most important thing about a cell, at least transcriptionally, is uh, that uh, is not necessarily the cytokine that they secrete or the transcription factor that is their kind of master uh, regulator. So the concept is is not is not wrong. It's just oversimplified. Thank you. Okay. In case anybody has been asleep for the last seven weeks, we were discussing this paper. <laughs> it's, there's a very small and clear summary cd4 positive effector t cells do not show discrete phenotypes in vivo but instead form a continuum of varying cytokine secretion ability and phenotypic markers uh, or at least we can say it for the colonic lemina propria t cells that was a quite an interesting paper i have said this before that i i don't like i like and more i'm more likely to remember these papers which provide me with a new set of concepts mm -hmm. that that ha that help me see the see the whole world of immunology in a in a different perspective or a better perspective so i think i'm not going to forget this paper for a very long time <laughs> and this paper also makes it a big challenge for undergraduates who are going <laughs> to learn that there are real <laughs> phenotypes in vitro with that I think it's a good time to wrap up the episode. Thanks a lot, Evgeny, for joining us, for answering our questions. Thank you, Eugenio and Natalie. For everybody Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. <laughs> for, for everybody listening to us, you guys can follow us on Facebook. We're also on Twitter. We recently got into Twitter. We're trying to uh, be more active there. You can find some memes or generally our podcast, journal clubs, or the new a new segment we have started called the career talk where we talk about job opportunities in different fields of science thanks a lot everybody and see you all later bye 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 bye, bye.